I, I write every day and I want to write every day and I want to take what I've learned and try to help other people. And I have this personal freedom from the book that allows me to do that. So I don't think I've ever been happier in my life. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, entertainment, leadership, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, and we are here in the middle of June, 2021. I am flying solo this week as our my partner, Tom Richardson, is off doing the business of business today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership today, um, the value of coaching, uh, the value of media, transitioning from one job to another, learning from the people around you and listening. Our guest is someone, if you are anywhere involved with football or coaching in the NFL, you've come across, or if you love good podcasting or good writing, or even follow the, the uh, newsletter he does now called The Daily Coach, uh, a good citizen of Ocean City, New Jersey. Uh, our guest is a graduate of Hofstra, Michael Lombardi. Michael, welcome to The Cusp Shop. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's um, so you had so many stops for um, <laughs> some of the people in a positive way for for some of our listeners um, who may not know your entire story, may only know you from the Daily Coach or the Athletic or your podcast or your books. Um, but take us through kind of a little bit of how you got here and starting with Hofstra, obviously, you know, you're the father of several coaches. Um, talk us about the, the career path through the NFL and how you got into the media and kind of the business that you're in today. Yeah, you know, for me, it started really young when I saw a guy on the television set that looked like he was part of my Sunday dinners in this Italian family that I grew up in. And Vince Lombardi roaming the Packer sideline was my hero, you know, and I was this young kid. I was born the same year he went to Green Bay in 59 and uh, I idolized him and I wanted to become just like him. So at an early age, I, I had had my heart set on becoming a football coach. And when he transitioned from the Packers to the Washington football team, I ended up becoming a Washington football team fan. And I just really plotted my life. Uh, around football. And so I went to Valley Forge Military Academy where I met uh, a coach named Roger Sicoli, who was a graduate of Hofstra, a Vietnam veteran, went to Hofstra after Vietnam uh, and recommended I go there. I went there. And then when I was at Hofstra, I, I kind of got a, a, my way through college barely. And I set my sights on trying to become a graduate assistant at some school somewhere. I wanted it to be Florida State with Bobby Bowden. It didn't work out. I settled for UNLV with Harvey Hyde in Las Vegas. And one day, a scout from the 49ers, a personnel director from the 49ers, walked by and was looking for a gopher. And I got into the 49ers in 1984, and the rest is uh, kind of history. I, I got there when I was just turned 25. So, you know, I reached the place I wanted to be, maybe not so much in coaching. Once I was at UNLV, I, I really wanted to be more of a, of a person, general manager than a coach. So I just shifted that into, into that area. And that's, that's what happened. And as you move up the, the chain, I mean, some of the, it's a who's who of who you've worked for over the years and then worked with and had people work for you who've gone on. So the, the Lombardi tree, uh, your Lombardi tree is pretty wide and pretty, um, pretty full of leaves, to say the least. But um, talk to us a little bit about the transition from how you went up the ladder and the things that you learned. And when you look back now, who are some of the two or three people that, that really influenced you when you had to make a pivot, continuing to go up, or even when things didn't work out and you had to move on from a job? Are there, are there people that you look back now on, Michael, who kind of helped you both move up and then figure out what was going to be next? And what did they do for you? Well, I think the number one person in my life was Coach Walsh, Bill Walsh. I mean, he, you know, I was driving him along one day in a car back in 1984 when there was no cell phones, there was no Waze, there was no Google Maps. I mean, it was just two people in a car, no satellite radio. You know, you either had a talk or you listened to what was ever on the radio. And mm -hmm. it gave me a great forum. It was what I called in my book, Carpool Karaoke. It gave me a great forum to ask him questions. And and probably the most profound question wasn't asked by me. It was asked by him, 
when he said, do you know who Tom Peters is? And I hesitated. I thought it was a punter from North Dakota. It wasn't. It was Tom Peters from McKenzie and Company, who had just written a book uh, named In Search of Excellence by Bob Waterford mm-hmm. and himself. And he told me to go buy that book. And he recommended strongly, strongly to not end up to think like personnel scouts. Walsh was very anti-personnel scouts because he felt like they were just a bunch of bad coaches now telling good coaches what to do. And he wanted me to, for whatever reason, he encouraged me to shift my, my thought process, not be a scout, to be a global thinker, to think differently. And the only way he could help me do that was by books. Go, go buy this book. And that's what I did. And I went and bought that book. And from that point on, you know, I didn't study leadership at Hofstra. I could care less about academics at Hofstra. I just wanted to get through to coach, to get through to the NFL. And at that point, I became really immersed in Tom Peters and Peter Drucker and Warren Bennis and all the great leadership lessons that I could possibly learn. And I proudly have that book on my shelf here today, signed by Peters. Mm. Um, so you, you progress along uh, 49ers, Browns, Eagles, Raiders. Um, the lessons you've learned along the way, taking what Coach Walsh kind of laid, laid out for you, um, how did that transition and how did it progress from one step to the next in terms of a leadership position, um, uh, a personnel position, a listening position? What, what, were, there, were there things that changed from when you went from place to place or was it more... Um, kind of taking the same thing and, and re-envisioning it in a different, different way? I think that probably what, what I learned as I look back on my career is that uh, Walsh said to me once, he said, you know, the league's not filled with the best and the brightest. That he didn't think the NFL was, was filled with a lot of high-level thinkers. And that was great advice, but it also led me to not understand it. And so I think in my youth and in my arrogance, I think what I didn't really understand, and I think this is really important for people to learn from, you only really are in two jobs in your life. You're in a job you can literally make a difference, and you're in a job that you can only grow from. And if you don't grow, if you try to make a difference in a job you're growing from, you're going to piss people off. You're going to cause some disconsent, and it's going to affect your career which I think it did mine. I think it did mine because I I wanted to try to make a difference because I'd spent all this time learning. I wanted to help. And people sometimes just don't want your help. You're better off retreating to your office and growing as opposed to trying to make a difference. And I think that ultimately what you must do, you know, when you're, when I say you're in a job that make a difference is, you know, or you're in a job that, that you can only grow from, In Kissinger's memoirs, he has a great line. He says, when you move to Washington and you enter political life, you borrow on the intellectual power you bring and you can't renew it once you're there. Mm -hmm. So Kissinger's basically saying, once you get a a political job, there's no time for you to learn on the job. You must do the job. And Churchill then says, you know, this is my destiny. This is what I truly was born to do. I've been preparing to become the prime minister at the most turbulent time. And I will make sure this island is protected and we will never surrender. So it's the, it's the two instances of you've got to understand it. Churchill understood he was in a job that he couldn't make a difference. So he prepared for when he did get that job. And, and Kissinger spent most of his time preparing uh, because he knew once he got there, he wasn't going to be able to renew his intellectual power. Hmm. When you, um, now when you look back and we'll get to the stuff you're doing today, which is impactful and helping change the lives of other people through other kinds of coaching. Were there, were there people that either you worked for or you worked with who were such diamonds in the rough that people don't know about? I mean, you know, you've obviously worked for some of the biggest and the brightest, you know, you mentioned Bill Walsh, Al Davis, uh, having been around the Patriots with coach Belichick, um, what, were there some people that you look back now and say, there's a person, a man or a woman who impacted either my life or I saw impact other lives, but just was kind of doing his or her job and, and never really got the credit. He wasn't interested in the credit. 
I think there's so many of those. I mean, when I first got to the 49ers, you know, I, I spent a lot of time learning uh, from Ernie Plank, a former scout who's passed away. He taught me kind of the, the, the ropes of the, the scouting profession. Gil Brandt with the Dallas Cowboys, he was with mm-hmm. uh, a group of uh, – he, he headed the Cowboys. He was the vice president of player personnel. He headed the Cowboys off uh, department, and we had a combine with him, uh, with the Cowboys, the 49ers, the Bills, and the Seahawks. And in that combine, you know, I was really taught how to be a scout by scouting professionals, but think like Walsh wanted me to think. Jerry Angelo, uh, one of the former scouts at the the Cowboys, who then went on to become the, uh, to go to the Bucks, then became the general manager of the Chicago Bears. He was highly influential in in my thought process, and you know, I learned a great deal from him about the whole process. So everywhere I went, I I, I learned a great deal from people, coaches, particularly coaches. I tried to pit Ray Rhodes when I was at the 49ers taught me tremendous amounts about the game of football, you know, Josh McDaniels at the Patriots to this day still teaches me a lot about football. So mm-hmm. I've been really blessed to be able to find people that, that, that are willing to give away their knowledge if you ask the right questions. Has that changed over the years? Do you think, do you think people are more willing or less willing to give, especially given everything that we've gone through in the last year? I think it's, I think people that share information are confident. They're not scared. You know, mm-hmm. I remember going to a clinic and, and when I was at Hofstra, I used to go to clinics all over the Northeast and I was listening to Tubby Raymond, the former head coach of the Delaware fighting blue hens. And he was up there on the board talking about the Delaware wing tee. And he said, he said, you know, uh, one of our assistants happened to walk into the wrong locker room. And when he got into that locker room on the board, on the blackboard was all the, all our plays. They had every one of our plays, the opponents did. And he came running in to see me and he said, they know everything we're going to do. And Tubby said, yeah, but they can't do it like we do it. And we'll beat them anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. I think, I, I think yeah. sharing information is really the only way you learn it. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because that that's always been a Larry Brown thing is, we'll worry less about them. They have to come and beat us. And, and yeah. you know, dictating, dictating where you're going to go is important. Speaking of going, um, you know, you've been around, you know, three Super Bowl championship rings, uh, some unbelievably successful coaches and people. Um, talk a little bit about loss and what happens when you have to reinvent yourself, because I want to talk about the media business next. Uh, but, you know, being the GM of the Browns uh, and then, transitioning to the Patriots, what was that like? And did you learn more from losing than you did from winning at that point? Well, the greatest thing that ever happened to me is I got fired from the Browns. I mean, (laughs) I I got fired from that job because I had two years remaining on my contract. Uh, I, I could walk away from the Browns. I got to work for the Patriots at a reduced salary and, and the Browns had to pay their bulk of it because, you know, that's, what happens in the NFL. And I was able to get back with coach Belichick and spend three glorious seasons with them mm-hmm. and I win two more Super Bowls, of which I wouldn't have been able to do had that now, you know, could I have worked for the Patriots probably, but you know, it w- might not have fit, you know, where it needed to fit, but because I went to the Browns, because I did that, it fit perfectly. So I, I was upset and angry about losing my job to the Brown at the Browns, but as I look back on my life and on my career, had I not, you know, I wouldn't have won two Super Bowls and I wouldn't have been able to go back with the greatest coach of all time and watch him at the, at the pinnacle of his success. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't look at that as loss. I look at that as gain. And I think if you would have asked this fat kid that was watching Vince Lombardi on television and said, look, you're going to win three Super Bowls. You're going to work for the greatest coaches of all time you know, would you like to do that? And I would have signed the paper immediately and I would have been able to remove my ego of not leading a team as the title of general manager to the Super Bowl. But I've gained a lot of personal freedom from writing the book and realizing that I've been blessed in this area. Um, You made two transitions, big transitions away from from the front office of teams, when you left the Raiders, went into media, and now obviously, you know, everything you've done since you left the Patriots, what were those transitions like, and what made you decide to try and go that route? 
both times. Well, first was the first one was serendipitous, right? So the first time I I, I had just gotten to the Eagles, and I ran the draft for the Eagles basically, uh, and we had a tremendous draft in retrospect. And Jeff Laurie and Joe Banner, the two people that were running the Eagles at the time, Jeffrey Laurie is the owner. They they were in love with the Pittsburgh Steelers model of personnel. And so even though we had great success, which I don't think they knew it at the time, uh, they fired me to hire Tom Modrak, and I was out of football. And so CBS was just getting television, just getting the rights back to the NFL. And so I, I was living in Medford. I was really depressed. Uh, you know, I had just gotten back into the league after the Cleveland moving of the team. And I went up to CBS and, and they, they had, they were interested in hiring somebody to help Brent Jones, Jim Nance, George Seifert, and Marcus Allen for the NFL Today show. They needed somebody behind the air to help them with football information. And so they hired me and it was such a great job. It was, I loved it. Uh, you know, I was in New York three or four days a week. I lived in Medford. My kids would come up. We would spend weekends in New York. It was tremendous. And so, you know, that was great. And then after about week two of the season, they put me on the air for whatever reason. I don't know. They just did. And that started my television career. I just started with the great Jim Nance. And I mean, he really was responsible for my ability to transition my information into a usable format so people would understand it and and appreciate it. So he tremendously taught me the media business in terms of television. And then I went back to the Raiders. So then when I was done with the Raiders, you know, once you reach a, reach a certain level in the NFL, we're, we're not a league that hires our form, the, the former general managers get hired in baseball, former general managers get hired in basketball. They don't in football. Mm-hmm. You know, they really don't. It's for, you know, there's a sense of, of, insecurity within the ranks and they don't really want somebody who has experience and the owners don't really, they don't want experience. So I knew when I was at the Raiders, I knew that if things didn't go well, I I was going to transition into something else because I wasn't going to have a career of just trying to beg to get a job in the league, being an area scout or something like that. So I took a writing course in San Francisco for six months I knew I had a book in me that would tell the story of these three great coaches I worked with. It wasn't from my viewpoint is what I learned. And I just started to prepare myself for life after football. And, and uh, the name of the book for those who haven't read it yet. And I've read it a couple of times. I have it here on my shelf is gridiron genius masterclass in winning and building dynasties in the NFL by Michael Lombardi, our guest today. Um, So, so now let, let's kind of, you're, you're now off the field. Um, you're in the media business, whether it's the athletic, the daily coach, your podcast, your coaching of coaches, you're listening to other people. How has that transition been? Because that's another big transition, leaving the, you know, the day-to-day grind of, of the NFL for something that's totally kind of different, but also puts you in a different perspective in terms of, of how people are viewing you and also what you're able to share. So, so walk us through the leaving of, you know, the walking away from the Patriots and into the business that you're in now. You know, I, I knew I had a book in me and, and I think there's, there's a, I forget who wrote, who says the quote, but there's three things a man has to do in life is, is have a son, plant a tree and write a book. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, the writing the book was probably the greatest, uh, turning point in my life, not because I think the book is successful or warrants attention. It's just because it was therapeutic for me. Because when you go through your professional life, and I'm sure people that listen to this podcast probably do, is you never feel satisfied. There's a sense of bitterness and entitlement that you feel you've been cheated on. And you feel like there's never been credit or whatever your ego gets involved. And And I felt like the book was really therapeutic for me to give. You know, I wish I would have spent more of my career giving than trying to take. And by writing the book, I I really got a sense of giving. And that transitioned me into where I am today by writing Gridiron Genius, by thanking the people that really, the the book should have been titled Gridiron Geniuses, because the book's not about me. The book's about the geniuses that I worked with and for. Mm -hmm. And so 
And so that transition me to really accepting that I'm a writer now. I'm not a football guy. I cover football. I study football. I know football, but I, I, I believe I'm a writer. I, I write every day and I want to write every day and I want to take what I've learned and try to help other people. And I have this personal freedom from the book that allows me to do that. So I don't think I've ever been happier in my life. And part of this is because of the great George Raveling, uh, having met Coach Raveling when we lived in when I lived in Los Angeles and spent time around Coach. When he told me the greatest years of his life were the time he was 62 till he turned till today, which is now 84, I, uh, I, I, I said, that's what I want. I want a second life. I want a second act. I, I want to I have the ability to show people that I had more than just football knowledge, that I could do something different. And I show myself more than anyone. And that's what really, I didn't want to be, I didn't, I don't know, this is going to sound morbid, but I didn't want to have an obituary where, you know, Lombardi spent 35 years in the NFL and then he did nothing for the rest of his day. It's a great Jimmy Buffett song uh, that where, you know, he, he, he writes about his grandfather, you know, and he says he went from sailing ships to raking mom's backyard. I, mm -hmm. I never wanted to rake mom's backyard. And, and um, so now we've got the daily coach and explain to everybody what that is and how they can sign up for it and how that's you and coach Raveling working together to really put out inspirational things every day. You know, you've got your regular writing podcast, you become a multimedia person. Do you think that, did you think when you were back that, that you had that in, you said you knew you had a book in you. When was it that you realized you're sitting in front of a camera with Jim Nance or you're doing a podcast and that was something that, that, was part of you and how that business could have grown from a media perspective. Cause it's all about building brand. I would imagine. Yeah. You know, I never really thought of it that way. Uh, the, the, the daily coach to me is, was to me has been another godsend because coach and I would sit at house and, and Playa Vista. And we had just finished reading a trillion dollar coach from the great yep. Bill Campbell, former yep. coach at Columbia, yes. you know, after, and think about the, think about Bill Campbell's confidence. Oof. He gets fired after four years as a head coach at Columbia. Now, you know, that could destroy somebody, right? He has enough confidence, call it arrogance, if you will, to set up an office in Menlo Park and say, I'm going to advise the great Silicon leaders and does. And that's why the book called The Trillion Dollar Coach was so impactful. So coach and I looked at each other and said one day over, over the appetizer plate at, at Howe's and we said, everybody needs a coach. Mm -hmm. If Steve Jobs needs a coach, everybody needs a coach. Who's going to help these coaches? You know, we, we talk today about we have to help African-American coaches become head coaches. And it's so true, right? But who's teaching them? Yeah. Who's teaching them? Who's, who's teaching the course? You know, I, I've said this for three years now. The NFL, with all the value, the money that they have, they should set up a leadership academy in, in somewhere, and call it the Jim Brown Football Institute and teach people, teach women of color, men of color, different ethnic groups, leadership. What is leadership? What do what is it that we have to do? You know, you can teach all the X's and O's will only get you fired. They won't keep you in your job. It's about leadership. It's about developing culture. And so coach and I decided, well, let's put, let's just do something to help that. Let's send out a daily email. Okay. So one day in July, two years ago, it'll be two years this July. We sent out a daily email. We didn't put a byline next to it. You know, we didn't want any credit for whose idea it was. We just shared the information. And now today we have over 25,000 email subscribers uh, that get our morning email. You know, we still don't have a byline. I write some, Coach writes some. We have Kamadi, Ramsey writes some. You know, we have other people that write. One other guy, Trevor, writes with us. He's a, he's a, we hired him as a young intern. And so that between the four of us and Alec, who kind of oversees the business operation of the Daily Coach, we're off and running. And um, the goal of the Daily Coach for you from either a cathartic or from a leadership standpoint is what? The goal is to basically read this less than 500 word at your desk or in your office or in your bed when you wake up and impact your day. 
Take one idea, take the idea that we have and try to transition it into your day. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to write about, there's a great, great quote by Jackie Anassas where she talks about, you know, she talks about uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's ability to read. She says he reads in the strangest way. He read walking. He read at a table at meals. He read after dinner. He read in the bathtub. He read all the time. And when people say they don't have time to read, he always did. He was reading practically when he was driving. And so reading really helps you grow. And then you transition that into, do you ever wonder why, Joe, great novelists become great in their 50s and 60s? And yet singer-songwriters stop writing songs at 30? Hmm. And the answer is Springsteen, because Springsteen just keeps reading. He keeps reading. That's why he keeps writing great songs. That's why he has the ability to write songs, whether people think they're great or not. And so that that idea became the it will be a daily coach column, and we hope that people that read that will impact their life. Cool. Um, so a couple of other things that, that you've touched on uh, that I just wanted to share. So um, when we did uh, the play of Vince Lombardi that ran on Broadway, we got to spend some time with amazing people as it was being developed. Uh, one of the things we learned when we met some of uh, the guys who worked for for or played for Coach. Um, was one of the things that he loved the most about his life was were not all the coaching awards he won at the NFL with the Packers and, and then in Washington at the end of his career, or even some of the things that he accomplished on the college level. It was a plaque that he had from St. Cecilia's High School in Englewood when he was the teacher of the year. And he always cherished that. And I remember Sonny Jurgensen talking about that when he came to Washington he had asked coach what he thought. And he said, this was something that I love because I love teaching. Um, how do coaches, what are the skills that coaches need to become good teachers? And whether you are coaching sport or coaching in life or leadership, what are some of the things that, that, that you can learn that are not innate that make you a good teacher? Well, I, th I think the number one thing, and I, I talked about this, I was fortunate enough to give a TED talk out at Santa Barbara a couple of years ago where the book came out. And I think it's really, there's four pillars of leadership. There's four, what I call uh, the tenets of leadership. And, and, and the first one is called management of attention, right? So all leaders, teachers, they've got to be able to draw your attention. And how do you do that? Well, you have to show them where we're going. You have to give them a plan. You know, you've got to make sure they understand what the plan is. You'll never get anybody to follow you or learn from you if you don't have a plan. The second area is called management of meaning, which means you can explain your plan in detail. You can teach your plan. You can use metaphors. You can use video. You can use words. You know, Amazon doesn't like PowerPoint presentation. They make you write your speech out. You know, whatever you do to communicate your message to the people that you're teaching, it's really critical. And it can't be the same. And it can't be the same way to do it. You've got to mix it up. And so management of meaning, that's the second area. And then management of trust. That's the area where you trust that I'm going to be consistent with all my actions. If I say I'm going to be in the class at 3 o'clock, I'm here at three, five minutes to 3. There's a sense of trust. So if I ask you to do something you know that I trust you to do it. Just like if you ask me to do something, you trust me. It's really important for coaches, right? If you, if you say, uh, you know, we're going to have a curfew at three o'clock, but you let eight people not come to the curfew, you lose trust. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is called management of self, which is how are you defining yourself? Can you be willing to admit your mistake? Are you willing to take responsibility? You know, when, when someone's successful, will you stand behind them? When someone's not successful or struggling, will you stand in front of them? That's called management of trust, a management of self. Um, I'll give you a fifth one, and you tell me how it factors in because this has been such an important thing, I think, today with everything that, that is coming at us, time management. Uh, good coaches cool. always have to be good time ma managers of time in the game, outside the game, in their businesses. Uh, and is it something that can be learned? Or is it something that's difficult for, to, for people to take on sometimes? Well, I think it's, I think time management is under the classification of management itself. Like if you can't lead yourself, how mm -hmm. can you lead other people? 
Right. Right. So I agree. Like, look, you know, and what I think you must be able to, it's one of Belichick's greatest strengths. How does he do everything he does? Well, one day, and I wrote about this in the book, one day when he first got the job in Cleveland, I walked into his office. He was still in his overcoat. He was sitting at this desk at, on First Avenue in Berea. And I walked in and he had a stack of phone messages back in the day when, you know, we literally had people answer the phone and they would write your messages. <laughs> and I said, Jesus, God, Bill, you got all these phone calls. What are you, and when are you going to return these? I'll get to them when I get to them. I mean, when you come into work in the morning, you got to have a plan. We wrote about this for the Daily Coach. There's things that are really important that you do. There's things that are important that you do, but they're not as important today as when you need to do them. And I think for a lot of young coaches, I think it's really important that you understand that there has to be time that you spend on yourself daily. And so when I ask a coach, did you work out today? They said, oh, yeah, man, I got a half hour work at it. But then if I ask him, did you read anything today? No, I didn't have time to read. Right. Well, your mind's as important as your body. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be able to combine the two. And you've got to think of your life. I used to say this all the time to the scouts when they worked for me, is you must treat your, your, you, yourself like a golf club, like a golfer, a pro golfer, that you're only going to get paid if you make the cut. You're only going to get paid if you get into the winnings. And every club in your bag, you better practice. And so, like a lawyer, you better justify your time. If you come in and you spend 15 minutes in your buddy's office next door to you, right, and you joke about all the things you saw on TV, American Idol, the basketball game from last night, you're just wasting your time. You've just lost 15 minutes. Maybe it was enjoyable, but you're not working. You could have used that to work on yourself. So everything you do during your day, you've got to justify, or else you're not going to get paid. Pay today or pay tomorrow. So how does balance work then? How does balance factor into it when you talk about culture, um, especially with people who are so time pressed today or can't manage their time that well? How do you, how do you instruct people on balance on keeping you know your father, your husband? You've been around a lot of people. You have two sons who are coaches. How how do you instruct people or how do you kind of lead them to that work life balance? Where does it not exist? I think you can have balance. I think it's, it's, it's really, but I think you have to leave when you leave work, leave work, Mm. leave your phone. You know, when you come home to see your kids, leave your phone. I think it's easier now to have balance than ever before. Just leave the phone in the car. You know, don't, don't look at your phone. Don't look at your, you know, don't look at your, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't bring work home with you. Go to work a half hour earlier. I mean, be present. I think that's the most important thing. We, we have become a generation of multitasking, but really we know this, that multitasking doesn't really work. You end up spending a lot of time in a lot of different areas that you don't really understand, that you're not giving your full attention to. Give your full attention. Um, one other aspect before we kind of get to a couple of other questions that I have, but um, Anybody who's listened to our podcast hear the phrase that I use all the time that my grandfather told me, two ears, one mouth, listen twice more than you speak. How do you become a good listener? How valuable is listening to leadership and the difference between listening and hearing? How do you, how do you instruct people in terms of the value of, of listening uh, in a way well, you yelling over each other? I think it's one of Belichick's greatest strengths. I think listening and hearing are two important things you must be able to do. I'm not saying you should agree with everything that somebody says to you, but you need to listen and understand it. So I think the the key is to never be listening with getting your answer ready. You want to digest everything somebody says to you. So don't formulate your answer until they're done talking and train yourself to do that. Like, I don't want to answer your question until your question's completed. And then I, then I think a pause and I'll give you an answer. So I've taken in the information. And then I think, you, you know, you've got to be able to, like reading a book, you, you want to take your time. How you read books are, are completely different. You know, do you underline the book? Do you make notes on the subpage? What, whatever you have to do when that person's talking to make sure you're co- coherently listening is really important because now what are you doing? You're doing two things. Not only are you hearing the person talk and listening to them, you're engaging in them. They now think their information is vital to you. And they may start to say things that they weren't planning on saying if they know you're taking notes. 
if they know you're really caring about how much they tell you? Adaptive learning. Um, is it something when you are a coach changing on the fly, not worrying as much about the bottom line, winning or losing, that you can grow and grow the people around you? Or is it more like the line that, that Coach Parcells has always used is your record is what you say, is what you say it says you are. Um, has that changed over the years from a coaching perspective? I mean, we're still, it's a winning business. But I think mm -hmm. the thing you have to be able to do is you must be able to learn from other people's mistakes. You can't survive your own. And instead mm -hmm. of making fun of somebody, instead of laughing at somebody who makes mistakes, learn from them. Mm -hmm. Um, what's the biggest mistake? I mean, I think, oh, I, I, you, you make them all the time. I think the biggest mistake in my career was leaving coach Walsh too early. I should have stayed with him. I should have never left. I thought mistakenly that I needed to work for five or six different teams to be able to really understand what to do. And what I found was it really doesn't matter. It only matters learning from the right people, not from a bunch of people. Um, multimedia. Uh, one of the last things I want to ask you, and adaptive learning, you've adapted to a world that is totally different from when you were at the Browns, at the Raiders, going to school at Hofstra. Um, you know, I look at the Daily Coach, and at the bottom of the Daily Coach, there's seven different ways that you can engage with whoever wants to engage on whatever platform. How have you learned uh, to use multimedia? How has someone like Coach Raveling learned to, to use multimedia? Uh, and what are the blessings of it? And what are some of the curses that you've seen that, that, that have kind of trapped you in things as you become, you know, using every platform you possibly can? Well, what, the, the, the immediate blessings is you get in touch with people you, you, you would have never thought you would have talked to. I mean, I have a friend of mine who I've never met in yeah. London who helps me tremendously. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know a lot about him, but he's gracious with sharing his information with me and he wants to help me. I mean, I would have never done that. I've become close friends with two people that used to read what I wrote back when I started the National Football Post with Jack Becta and Andrew Brandt. You know, that mm -hmm. was one of the first things that when I left the Raiders that we worked on. And it's still in business today, but it's not the vision that we had. So it, it's allowed me to be in contact with the, the people that I never would have thought I would have been in contact with. That's the real positive side. The negative side is the anger, is the hostility that people direct towards you. That if you write something that they don't agree with, the anger, the, the, the false, the t Twitter tough guy, I call him, mm -hmm. that I kind of tend to ignore. So that's the, that's the only downfall, being social, uh, you know, and, and, and being engaged that way. But I don't really, to me, I, I've learned to accept it. I don't, I don't read anybody's comments that unless you follow me on Twitter, I won't read your comment. You know, because if you're not going to follow me on Twitter, then I don't really care about what you're going to say. If you follow me on Twitter and you tell me I'm an idiot, okay, you're entitled. My reaction is simply this. I work for Al Davis. I've been called worse than anything by one of the greatest human beings of all. I don't really have a problem. You, you, you couldn't even stack up to him. So whomever's ripping me, they don't, they don't have a half a clue what he is. So I've taken it from the best. I could take it from somebody I could care less about. Michael, you've talked about a lot of the people that you've worked for, you've been around. Um, who are some of the, the rising stars that you think people should be following who they may not know about right now? Whether it's a coach, whether it's a leader in business, um, a member of the clergy, doesn't matter. If there were a couple people that rise up, especially women, who are some of the people that, that you think people should be following and listening to more? Well, I learned a lot from Andy Duke. I mean, Andy Duke, the former poker player who transitioned into a, a, a working on decision-making. By the She's way, really Columbia graduate. So. Yeah, I mean, she's really, you know, and if, if I mentioned Andy Duke to somebody on Twitter, somebody has a reaction, one of the smartest people I've ever been around, very giving, selfless in her in her ability to uh, want to help people make decisions, the alliance for decision making that she started with some other people. Adam Grant, somebody that I can't get enough of. James Clear online is truly remarkable uh, that I listen to and I follow the advice. I get their emails every single day. You know, and I, M Melissa Jacobs uh, is oh, yeah. a woman Football on Twitter girl. that, yeah, yeah, yeah she is uh, the CEO office. She does a tremendous job of, of sharing leadership information. So mm -hmm. for me, I, I mean, 
I've been really fortunate to have uh, a lot of different people impact that I learn from and I, and I grow. I mean, it's really kind of a fun thing that you, that people share information. Brian Dodds uh, from a, he comes at it from a Christian base, tremendous, you know, he's always constantly reading books, always constantly looking into things. And, you know, and I always kind of learn something from whatever he posts out there. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun. Hey, Rex Chapman's got somebody mm-hmm. on Twitter that you feel like he brightens your day up every day. He finds things and he does it all by himself, which is pretty amazing. Um, Michael, father of a coach, are there lessons that you've passed on or do your, uh, your coaching sons not listen to you and kind of carve their own path? Well, I, I tell them all the time, the players only respect knowledge. You know, I think that you can be a 90-year-old uh, white white guy or you can be an 18-year-old African-American. If you can make the players better, they're going to listen to you. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Knowledge is king. And so I keep reminding them to work on their knowledge, mm-hmm. improve their knowledge. You've got to show that you can make people better. That's the job of the coach. I've got to improve you. I've got to improve you. If you listen to what I say, you will become 1% better every day. And that's the only thing I stress to them is that you can't stay status quo. You can't get comfortable. Comfort has no place. Being comfortable. um, One of the last questions I have is um, take us through your day. I mean, you're touching on so many different areas, using multimedia, talking to people on the phone, whether it's around the NFL or around Ocean City. Um, What's your day like? I mean, do you get up early? Are you an early riser? And, and kind of walk us through when you do your reading, your your posting, uh, and does it change from day to day? No, it's pretty much consistent, Joe. I, I get up early in the morning and I try to start writing. What I, what I really find is is that if I if I have a, a planned writing assignment every morning, then my mornings are much brighter. So. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I, I, I start my morning with, a, a, you know, obviously I type up a, a to-do list of things I have to accomplish. I have a weekly to-do list that I type up on Sunday. I, I usually start out by, I have three journals that I write every morning when I start. One for, you know, health, one for, you know, the book that I'm working on and one for just overall. So I write that, I plan my day, and then I get right into typing. I get right into writing what I have to write. And then usually usually around a certain part i have to exercise i go and exercise for an hour whether it's walk my dogs or get on the peloton or do something that i have to do and then from there i have a, a, a show every day from 12 to 2 on vston that i that i work on so i'll get to my i have a, a studio downtown from ocean city that i usually get there about 10 30 or 11 for prep for my show and then i, I do the show and i get back here at two o'clock and, uh, you know, then I spend time really preparing for the next morning. What am I going to write about? What do I need to work on the next day? And what do I need to read? And, you know, usually from five to six, I spend time reading stuff that I want to read. And then at 630, I usually stop working and go upstairs and spend time with my wife and have dinner. Did um, Has your routine changed over the years? I mean, the pieces obviously have changed, but were you always that structured? And how did the structure come about? Well, I, I love routines. I mean, I've read a thousand links about people's routines. I'm, I'm curious about routines. Uh, mm-hmm. I work my day. Uh, I'm an early riser. Now, when I am writing the book, which I will start, which I will start, I will get up earlier than I have to than normal, and I'll spend more time writing. But I, I really feel like, look, if I can get up at, and go to the office at 4.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning and working for Jimmy Haslam of the Browns or Robert Kraft of the Patriots, I can get up early and work for Michael Lombardi. So, you know, I like to get up early. I like to work. I think the best writing I have is during the day, during the morning. And then I like to edit in the afternoon and prepare my day for the next day. So between, between those things, that's kind of what I do. And I've always been very structured. Usually I like, I would always get to work early, have to prepare my day, plan my day, because you don't know, sometimes your day is going to get unraveled. But the good thing about working for yourself, your day is not going to come unraveled, you know, and I can pretty much control the pace and flow of my day. And you probably mastered social distancing, having to work for yourself and, and uh, just going to a yeah, studio. I, <laughs> so. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been great. I mean, I live in this little beach town. I have a good friend that lives around the corner. He has two young daughters that go to high school and junior high. And his wife and our family, we're all close now. So we've all we've all COVID experienced together. So we do everything together still now, even though we've all been vaccinated. And my circle is very small. And I live in a part of Ocean City that's very quiet. So I can go for a bike ride in the afternoon if I want. I take the dogs for another walk in the afternoon if I want. So it's really kind of good. And there's certain days that I just, you know, I, I, every day of the week is the same for me. I, I mean, I, I love Robert Caro. I love Robert Caro uh, to death. And I, and I follow his routine. You know, I, like he writes every day. No matter If he's writing on a book, he writes every day, seven days a week, not because he wants to, because he doesn't want to lose his place. Yeah. And uh, several thousand page books on some of the greatest leaders in our history <laughs> have left quite a legacy for Robert Caro. But um, Michael, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you've touched on some of the, the places that you read and, and how you get smart and keep up to date on everything. Um, for people, most of the, a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are young people starting out or people transitioning. Um, you've made some pretty interesting pivots in your career. Uh, whether it's going to media, working for different people, working in the biggest platforms you can, working for yourself. What are some of the, a couple of things of advice that you give for people who are either in transition or just starting out? I think the number one thing would be is follow what you want to really do. If you really want to transition into being a writer, then write, then do it. And I know that's easier said than done. You have to have an income coming in, but I think more than anything, you must you must give everything you have to what you want to become, mm-hmm. and don't look back and, and don't worry about what happened. You are now starting chapter two, and you can't. It, since it's chapter two, it's a clean page. You know, you can't say, "Well, you know, I was doing this for the other job. I can't really do." Oh, you know, if you want to transition, you got to start back at the base of the mountain and climb back to the top. And so I would just constantly, and I would work every single day towards that goal and know, and, and not expect progress to happen overnight because it hasn't happened. Like, I, you know, I feel like I have such a long way to go to where I want to get to. And I'm reminded by what Branch Rickey said when he was leaving the job as the Pittsburgh Pirates president and general manager at the age of 75, you know, Branch Rickey, he invented the batting helmet. He invented the batting cages. He started minor league baseball. He uh, he developed the farm systems. And of course, naturally, he broke the color barrier in baseball by signing Jackie Robinson. And they asked Ricky at his farewell press conference in Pittsburgh, they said, what's your greatest accomplishment? And he said, it hasn't happened yet. I think <laughs> if you keep that mindset, it hasn't happened yet, then you grow. I, I agree. Um, you know, one, one last question about the football side, because you talk so much about culture uh, and the value of team. Analytics. Has analytics helped or hurt, or is there is there still a kind of a middle ground that we have to find in in player development and and development of talent on any level in any business? Well, look, we're you know if you said to me what was your main job in the NFL, I was in the information business. That's mm-hmm. my main job, and if I'm not willing to embrace analytics, in in uh, if you're in the information business, you're an idiot. Now, there's you have to apply the analytics correctly. You know, it's easy to say in football, you need to come out and throw the ball out of 11 personnel. Well, that's probably right. But if we have a right tackle that can't block, how are we going to throw the ball out of 11 personnel? If we have a left tackle who can't block. So a lot of it is applied. A lot of analytics can really help you as a coach to understand the the hardest thing you have to do is evaluate your own team. That's where I think analytics plays such a great role in pro football. Like if you're really like, for example, let's, I wrote a column for the athletics today. It's out about Daniel Jones and the, 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 the New York giants, the giants are all in on Daniel Jones. Now after 27 games, he's only thrown five. He's only had five games where he's thrown over 300 yards, five. And all of them occurred before Jason Garrett showed up. <laughs> so he's never averaged over seven yards per attempt. He's had 39 passes of 25 yards or more in his entire 27-game career. 16 happened with Garrett last year. Now, what's going to happen is if Garrett doesn't make Daniel Jones into a star, Garrett's going to get fired. That's just that's as simple as fact. But is that right? Is it Garrett or is it Jones? 
to the giant front office, it's Jones. Jones is great. They see nothing wrong with Jones. Where analytics can help you really understand what are we dealing with here? Here's a guy who's fumbled 20 times in, in 27 games. He's lost 12 of them. He's never had games where he's had three games in his entire career. He's averaged over seven yards per attempt. If you want to win a Super Bowl, you have to be at 8-5. Um, and then lastly, um, and before we let you go, you're touching on so many areas, your radio show, your podcast, the daily coach in a short period of time. Can you rattle off all the places where people can find Michael Lombardi and all the things that you're touching on? Yeah, really easy. I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, M Lombardi NFL at Twitter, I, I post everything that I do there. I'm on Instagram at M Lombardi NFL. I do that. I'm on LinkedIn. And so those are the three areas. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you know, you can email me through the Daily Coach. We have an email provider there that you could ask questions or just send me a direct message on Twitter. No TikTok yet? I don't know that one yet. I, I see Bill, <laughs> Bill's my friend that, I, that we COVID with. I see his daughter doing TikTok all the time. I don't quite grasp it, but, I, you know, I, I'm in enough places. I think it's, it's probably just enough for me. Yeah. Uh, Michael Lombardi, a great author, listener, podcaster, inspirative leader, um, coach, um, inspiring of other people. Your, your tree, as I said at the beginning, has so many leaves on it. Um, we want to thank you for joining us on the Cusp Show. And hopefully now as we get back to campus, we can kind of lure you up from Ocean City uh, and come join us on the Columbia campus. And we'll go visit uh, the Walsh, uh, the, uh, Walsh Center, the Campbell Center, which for people who don't know is where the football team is housed at Baker Field, which is an amazing complex unto itself. For those who haven't read The, million, uh, the Trillion Dollar Coach, Michael mentioned it. You should check it out. But more importantly, check out his current book, Gridiron Genius's Masterclass in Winning and Building Dynasties in the NFL, which has been out for a few years. And keep your eye out for his new book, as well as signing up for The Daily Coach. Once again, Michael Lombardi, thanks for joining us on the cusp. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Cool. Once again, this has been The Cusp Show. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito with our guest, Michael Lombardi, today. For our producer, Ben Walsh, and my co-host, In Absentia, Tom Richardson, we'll see you down the road. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.